HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Henry's Wine and Spirit. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good evening, and welcome to the start of a brand new season of Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Bushwick on Heritage Radio Network. So, as some of you may be able to tell from my episodes, if I had to define my general outlook on life, I would say that I'm cautiously optimistic with a heavy emphasis on cautious. And certainly today, in a world where I wonder what fresh hell I will read about in the newspaper every morning, I am running much more pessimistic. But it's the start of a new year filled with new opportunities and possibilities. So I am choosing to be more hopeful about our collective future. To that end, author Gary Napan is joining the show today to talk about his new book, Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our Communities and Our Land, which presents a collection of stories that illustrate what good can happen when people organize and work together to restore land in order to produce healthy foods. Gary is an agricultural eco- um, eco- ecologist ethnobotanist, interfaith Franciscan brother, and author whose work has primarily focused on the interaction of biodiversity and cultural diversity of the arid binational Southwest. He's considered a pioneer in the local food movement and in the heirloom seed saving movement. Gary, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Um, your uh, list of accomplishments and um, the work that you do is is so impressive and impactful and power of, like, complicated, I think, that I can't even pronounce the words. <laughs> like, well, might need to try that again. That I, <laughs> let's Sorry. just say that I collaborate with a lot of people across disciplines and across cultures. So if some of those words have multiple adjectives on them, it's because I'm trying to walk across the boundaries. 
All right. Well, you know, in fact, to that end, your work has, um, you have been described as a biocultural conservationist, which is a term that is apparently way easier for me to say. (laughs) Um, Can you define what this means and how you got into this field? Well, thank you. Uh, The word implies that we can't really save nature without uh, stabilizing, celebrating, and safeguarding our cultural values and our connections between cultures and nature. So if we lock people out of interactions with nature, uh, including healthy farmlands, we're not doing much good in the long run because we need cultural communities over generations to maintain those connections. And I got into this through working at the first Earth Day headquarters in 1970 at that first event that brought 20 million people together around the world to uh, celebrate our uh, natural world and to sort of up the ante to protect it, just like many of the marches on Washington and the climate accords are doing today. Mm-hmm. So as a 17-year-old, I, I was already engaged in thinking about these issues of environmental justice and food justice. Um, okay, so before we kind of get into the more optimistic um, parts of the book, I want to lay the groundwork for where we are today. And you offered some really interesting t- statistics on just how divided we are as a country. So let's st- first kind of start with that and then move into the effects um, on, it has on the environment. But you said um, something that, you know, that I at least feel, especially when I travel outside New York, which is, um, you know, we're more divided than ever along political lines. Um, you write that in 2016, national election in, in the national election, 80% of the country had landslide victories, where one dominant party ran a full slate of like-minded individuals. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this divide? Right. I mean, we've always been a heterogeneous country, uh, and yet now the divides between different uh, ideologies, political parties, uh, face uh, urban-rural etc., are deeper than ever. So more people vote uh, in a way that the other side might consider extreme rather than uh, finding more people that are interested in walking across the aisle into the middle. And we see that in the kind of stalemate between uh, different parts of our government today. That's no news to any of us in America. Mm -hmm. But I think how severe this has become in the last 20 years, including a sense that you're either for jobs or for the environment, a kind of false dualism in my mind, has never been stronger. I mean, even when we've had Republican presidents like uh, Richard Nixon, we were preserving lands and we were uh, helping farmers and and all of that. So it seems to me that the, the trouble we have now is not that people have different points of view. I welcome that. But they're really entrenched and they're not hearing people. And in fact, they're disparaging people who have a different point of view than their own. And you think this is true, even though we've always had a like a two-party system, by and large, in this country? That's right. The uh, uh, statisticians and the pollsters really say this is deeper than ever. So we're at with looking at a Grand Canyon-sized chasm 
mm-hmm. between different parts of America now, and it's uh, indigenous and immigrant. It's urban and rural. It's not just Democrat and Republican. And that's why I don't think Washington can take care of this problem for us. We have to walk toward the radical center or the middle path together and listen to people whose views are unlike our own. And the key, I think, is working together on the ground and some of that ideological posturing fades away when we're actually participating in community-based projects. Yeah, and one thing that you said um, that I kind of want to highlight is that the first Earth Day in 1970 um, did happen under Richard Nixon, and you write that um, that he said uh, that environmental responsibility can unite Americans, um, who it's funny because at that point there was a, a big divide uh, in the country, right, between like the war and race and, and whatnot. So it seems like we've kind of returned. It's be- this issue has become very um, partisan with one. Yeah. Right. I mean, like with one side. It's thinking that it's a priority to address environmental issues and the other, like denying the existence that there is an issue. That's right. And so we had great Republican conservationists from uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, through Nixon, who at one time had uh, set aside more national park lands than any other president. But but more than that, you've said something very, very uh, Im- important there that um, – the first Earth Day did bring people out who weren't just scientists or doomsdayers. Uh, faiths were involved. I talked on Earth Day at a at a Catholic uh, uh, college in Iowa, and the, the nuns were very funny. They said, "I think you're okay as long as you just don't bring up abortion today." <laughs> well, but that yeah, <laughs> but but it was what I'm saying is. They saw common ground. Right. The people that I worked with in the office in Washington, D.C., came from the civil rights movement, from uh, uh, Civil Rights Summer and the anti-Vietnam War movement. And yet they said, what we really want to do now is bring people together and deal with our uh, uh, urban environmental injustices. I wrote on lead poisoning in cities while I was there and issues like that. Still happening today. Just, yeah, that's <laughs> Still right. Still a really it big wasn't problem. just about wilderness. Right. You're, you're absolutely right that, that it's still happening today. But that was the first uh, calling attention to the issues in a way that said, these are problems that we must be united about to solve. Right. I guess, I mean, and this is kind of getting a bit off topic, but we are a country that seems more and more are like a one issue, um, like issues are kind of like, or uh, voters are sort of like one issue. That's how they decide to vote, right? So they're like, this candidate is pro-life. And so that's the most important thing to me. And that's what I'm voting on. So like, how do you work across the aisle um, if you just ultimately don't prioritize, you know, how, how do you, who do you vote for if you don't prioritize the environment exclusively? That's right. And it's not just about voting. Uh, we're siloed in so many other ways. Each of us can just listen to uh, one station, whether it's, you know, Fox News or MSNBC, and never hear another point of view if we, if we don't really seek those out. And so it's it's not just that we're a, 
a one-issue thing. I'm voting for this person only because I lost tons of money during the recession, and I don't care if it looks like greed. I want regulations out of the way so I can make more money again. Mm -hmm. There's people who are saying that who aren't mean-spirited people, but they're saying, I lost all my life savings in the last 10 years. I got to see the economy working again. And I think the people in the Rust Belt, say that are lower middle class who've lost their jobs, the rest of us need to understand why they're voting the way they do and have empathy for the root, how they're dealing uh, with that and look for the root causes of it. And I would say the only difference I have with some of those people is um, – in assigning blame, who caused the problem? Um, I think uh, it's uh, much more some structural issues, not one party or the other. And so uh, we may um, uh, have differences in uh, who we want to blame for for a problem, but I have empathy for the people who've lost their jobs over the last 10 years, don't want to see jobs go overseas, are worried about immigrants coming into the country, taking their jobs. I don't think that's a substantive argument in terms of uh, uh, those people really taking jobs away from mm -hmm. from uh, native-born Americans. But what I'm saying is underlying empathy for people who have differences of opinion who've suffered is still important. Right. And deprioritized. Or somehow I think that concept is lost even more so than ever. Oh, I agree with you. I completely agree with your context here. So, okay, so you do say, though, that um, the that Americans are not really divided. This, this I felt like there were some things in the book that kind of confused me. <laughs> and one of well, the things... Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, you, you wrote that the um, that we're not divided over whether or not the environment needs restoration or that re communities require social uh, healing. Um, but, it, I, but it does seem that, like, in some of the decisions that have either come out of the administration or um, like the kind of unbridled hatred that we see between community groups. Like I don't actually see how there isn't division amongst the among Americans amongst how important this is to address. Well, there are certainly the divisions what I'm saying, I'll give you two examples is that uh, most people really care about the environment in which they live, the water, the air, uh, even the noise pollution. Uh, they want their kids to live healthy lives and understand that certain kinds of contamination imperil that. They like seeing wildlife. They're thrilled by it, mm -hmm. whether they're hunters or whether they're vegans that use binoculars to birdwatch. But they disagree on whether um, conserving and restoring a healthy environment and a diverse food system should be done by regulation and punitive actions against bad players, or whether it should be done by incentives and uh, moving uh, some of the decision-making to the community level. They don't feel heard about the environmental concerns that that they're most worried about, that they care about. So they know that uh, some lands need protected in their neighborhood or in their county, but they don't want that a top-down decision-making because they think they have what we call ecological knowledge with Native Americans I work with. We mm -hmm. call it indigenous knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge, and they don't feel that that's being heard 
by who they call bureaucrats, what some people call the expertocracy. They want to be engaged in the decision-making, and they feel that they've been disempowered. And and that's Native Americans I know, immigrants I know. A lot of people feel that way, but it's not that they don't care about the environment or a healthy food system. Okay, so I, and just to kind of push back on the idea that they want to be more involved. Another thing that you talk about was that, um, you know, I mean, you talk a lot about community-based collaboration and that's, and that's the need, the need, what we need to do. And we need to come towards the radical center. Can you actually first tell us what that is, what that term means? Yeah. The, uh, the rancher, Bill McDonald, who started with four or five other people, the Malpai Borderlands group, uh, uh, collaboration between, uh, ranchers, uh, place-based environmentalists and, and state and federal agencies in our region, uh, uh, in the U.S. Southwest, um, applied that term to the need to walk toward the middle and saying, that's actually a more radical, uh, more um, um, audacious place to be now. Uh, of actually listening to other people, mm-hmm. of finding common ground, than people who call themselves radical environmentalists who just won't listen to anyone else or or um, uh, sort of uh, sagebrush rebellion, uh, anti-conservation people who, who um, are really playing an old trope. The more radical thing right now, and it's hard for even environmentalists to do is say we need to build bigger coalitions with people who don't dress like us, speak like us, pray like us, but have valuable things to say about where they live and should be included in the decision making. Okay. And so that's the center. That's where you want to get people to come for. That's right. And and uh, a collaboration between organic farmers and conventional farmers on the West Coast calls that same space the middle path. Okay. Um, okay, great. So you know what? Let's actually transition. I'm going to save my my question um, for later, but I, let's transition to the, like, the meat of your book, which really um, gave a lot of hopeful um, examples about you know, community-based collaboration that has really been successful in, in healing, as the title of your your book um, states, like the communities and the land. So um, you talk about several environmental issues from water scarcity to um, nutrient depletion in our soil. So I want to go through a few of these and, and just kind of provide a little bit more background. So let's start with water scarcity. Um, what's the problem here? And, and yeah, just first, can you lay out kind of like the issue with where we are where we are right now? Well, that's great. Um, in the West, in particular, because of drought and wildfires and and um, uh, sort of uh, urbanization of certain uh, flood sh- uh, plains and watersheds, we've really seen a number of our rivers dewatered. And I live between the longest and and most uh, well-known rivers that once flowed all the way to the ocean and don't 300 days of the year or more every year. And that's a Rio Grande that comes down from Colorado and New Mexico to Texas and the Colorado River that comes down from Colorado, Utah to Arizona and California and into Mexico. 
And um, you can't blame the dewatering of those uh, rivers on one issue, but to solve the problem, you really need hundreds of local, state, and federal organizations, both grassroots organizations and federal agencies in the room together. And so in the case of uh, the Colorado River, whose watershed I live in, um, I remember going 20 years ago when I was kind of an earth-firster radical environmentalist, and I heard a guy say, um, it's going to take 50 agencies at the at the irrigation district, local, county, state, and federal level of coming together or we're not going to see uh, water on the Colorado River Delta that then feeds the Gulf of California where, where most of the West gets its fish, not from the Pacific Ocean. And we need people to collaborate to get that done. Now, let's start that process. And I thought, pie in the sky, this will <laughs> never work. And within five years, we saw people restoring wetlands on the uh, floodplain, uh, farmers uh, letting back some of their irrigation allotment to um, uh, rewater part of the Colorado River Delta, and a lot of other voluntary actions, both by irrigation districts and their farmers and by federal agencies, uh, to flip that around after a century of going in the wrong way. So the policy radically changed, and U.S.-Mexico collaboration was part of it, but it was also getting over the us versus them uh, dialectic between California and Arizona, or the upper basin of the Colorado and the lower basin. So people had been siloed, were thinking about only themselves and the wildlife and actually, the economy were suffering because of that. And what were what was the you know kind of like up like you talk in particular you highlight one particular project um, that had like a lot of success. Can you can you tell us more? Yeah, about that? I have a wonderful neighbor, uh, Valer Austin, who's uh, put in twenty two thousand check dams in a collaboration with Mexican stonemasons, artisans on. Uh, who come from south of the border but have helped her do this on both sides of the the border in a watershed that actually flows from Arizona into Mexico. And uh, um, miles of river that hadn't flowed for years are now reflowing. The wildlife has come back. Uh, uh, Tens of thousands of tons of soil that would otherwise wash out to the ocean um, are now being held in place. But behind these 22,000 check dams that she did. It's created jobs. It's created wildlife hunting opportunities that then bring more money into the local economy. And it's been a win-win situation for ranchers and environmentalists. And so if you have water staying in place, the rangelands recuperate almost on their own. If you if you uh, keep all that water from uh being one big flash flood, but instead let it slowly seep into the ground and seep into uh, uh, the watershed. You're replenishing the groundwater and you're uh, renewing the surface water that that wildlife and recreationists need. So that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. It 
it always takes more than one person or one skill set to do that. It's it's literally the best example of it takes a village that I know of. In this case, it was a binational village. So here we're talking about a wall, and yet mm. people on both sides of the border uh, are collaborating to bring back a binational watershed. And that's what we're doing with a nonprofit where I live in uh, Patagonia, Arizona, Borderlands uh, Restoration Network that has employed 136 high school kids to help with this and created about 70 new jobs in our rural community where unemployment was over 25, 30% at the time of the uh, 2008 recession. So that restoration economy is now the third largest, um, if you want to call it, industry in the rural West. Um, wow, that's that's incredible. And definitely a cause for optimism. I think, um, and this is uh, not something that I um, know too much about, but didn't Beto O'Rourke um, write an article or talk um, about the seriously negative consequences that this wall with Mexico will have on wildlife and like from an ecological perspective? Did you read that? Um, I did. And um, a good friend of mine who was at once a uh, the highest ranking ecologist in the Clinton administration, Ron Pulliam, and I also uh, uh, wrote an article that was in about 40 Western newspapers. And and 10,000 scientists collectively uh, wrote a petition and, and uh, that was attached to an article called um, Scientists United from Both Sides of the Border, Wildlife Divided, that... that um, uh, a large portion of all the endangered species on one side of the border or another will be negatively impacted by the wall, not simply because uh, they can't walk across, but it it uh, fragments the gene pools and rare species, if they have inbreeding, are even more vulnerable to extinction. So there's multiple reasons that a 60-foot wall or even a 30-foot wall will impact a large variety of wildlife and even plants that I've studied, like night-blooming cacti. Um, well, that's just great. <laughs> yeah, but what, what, well, you know, your cautious optimism yeah. and, and your healthy skepticism <laughs> are both warranted. I mean, when yeah. you opened that, I said, you know, I'm with you. I'm sort of like a, uh, a cerebral pessimist, but a glandular optimist. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if something can get me up in the morning in a positive way, I'm going to stick with it, even though there's obviously many dark signs around us right now. Right. And I think, I think that despite the fact that we have this debate over the border, that 10,000 scientists came together to say, we have to work together or all our efforts are down the tube, yeah. shows that whatever you want to call it, the resistance or the counterpoint is more important now than ever before. So uh, it's an ill wind that blows no good, I guess, is the, the moral to the story here. Yeah. Okay, well, what about, so another chapter um, you have devoted to pollinators and the steep decline in population, the populations of bees, butterflies, bats, doves, um, et cetera. So can you tell us a little bit about this particular issue and an example of how you um, collaborated to make an impact? Well, thank you. Uh, that's an issue that I've worked on for 20 
years or more. I, in 1995, I wrote a book with uh, a world-class bee ecologist, uh, Stephen Buckman, called The Forgotten Pollinators, which was sort of the first, uh, you know, Paul Revere's uh, warning cry uh, uh, that we had to do something about declining pollinators, not just honeybees, which get most of the um, the press, but uh, bats, butterflies, hummingbirds, um, native bees, and all of that. And and we came up with this a statistic that's um, now in um, a dozen movies and uh, 100 books and over uh, 800 scientific papers that one out of every three bites of food that we eat is brought to us by a pollinator. There had not been a nationally released and distributed book since Rachel Carson's Silent Spring mm-hmm. that drew as much attention to pollinators. And yet it wasn't just something that Steve and I did together. We found a, formed a network of uh, uh, farmers, uh, bat conservationists, uh, 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 nurserymen, um, uh, beekeepers, people of many professions to guide a forgotten pollinators campaign within uh, uh, two years of the book coming out, we must have visited 36 states for that book, barnstorming, and being on radio shows like this in, in at least a dozen states. Uh, we saw things like state pollinator protection plans being written, uh, uh, National Academy of Sciences National Research Council overview on this. The U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Department of Interior bringing scientists within their uh, two uh, agencies together for the first time to deal with this issue in a cohesive way rather than being fragmented. And uh, four years ago, I had the uh, pleasure of being at the first ever uh, White House summit on pollinators. Um, and that seemed like just an amazing thing. Industry was involved, Burt's Bees and yeah. many other companies that said, we wouldn't have um, uh, a staff, uh, uh, any income were it not for pollinators. So there's been a groundswell of attention to this. And again, more recently with a grassroots group um, uh uh, called uh, Make Way for Monarchs. We worked with the Mexican Poet Laureate uh, uh, Homer Arigis and, and many great monarch butterfly uh, scientists to get a front page story in the New York Times and 250 scientists from eight countries to say to the three Mexican presidents, we need a monarch butterfly trinational plan. Mm-hmm. And a hand letter, a hand delivered letter was taken to the three presidents when they met in Mexico and they agreed to go ahead with a plan and it's moving along and over 70,000 farmers wow. have been trained in pollinator protection and planting wildflowers and other plants to bring back pollinators just in the last five years. That is so, that is awesome. That is really great to hear. Um, We're going to have to take a super quick commercial break in just one minute, but one question I want to ask or kind of point I want to highlight relating to this topic specifically is, and you touched on it, you said that there, you know, the involvement of the ag industry was something that 
kind of helped you, it, helped, it shifted your view of the industry. And, you know, this is something certainly that I have found in my work. I think there's been a tendency, like a big divide between the advocacy community and industry. And there is an idea that you, you kind of can't work together. I mean, certainly from the advocacy side to kind of dismiss a, some of the good things that industry could be working on. So how has your view of the of this um, kind of like divide shifted and the, the possibility that uh, the ag industry can make an imp- impact? Well, in short, I would say that I quickly learned that instead of poking someone in the eye and calling them an adversary, to knock on their door and say, um, there's a big challenge in front of us and we need you is so important. And as one guy at this uh, uh Pollinator Summit at the White House said, we need everyone on deck. We need all hands on deck. We can't solve this problem without the ag industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have farmers networks that if the farmers don't hear about this or think that uh, people are attacking the industry rather than wanting their participation, not only will environmentalists lose, the monarch butterflies and the bees will lose. And so I've been humbled by both the heterogeneity of in the industrial ag community. They're not all bad guys. They don't need disparage. We need big ag to become more sustainable. And instead of stiffing them, we need to engage in them and see where there's common ground. Is this an example of you also say that one of the things you've learned is that, um, you know, kind of after certain failures in an agenda, your agenda, your agenda, environmentalists have to kind of seek a new way to reframe their concerns in in a way that's more compatible with another person's values. Is this an example of how you've done that working with Uh, industry? That's, that's exactly it. So I have to talk to soybean farmers, ranchers, uh, uh, people that their job is to, to, uh, spray herbicides on weeds uh, on roadsides or on farms and to not find a common language and common values is is to say um, I assume I will fail unless we bring them on board and find ways that we use their ingenuity and problem solving skills there's a stalemate yeah Um, Okay. All right. With that, I'm going to take a super quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors, but stay tuned. This episode is presented by Henry's Wine and Spirit, a go-to shop for anyone interested in natural wines and boutique spirits. There's a large selection of everything from orange wines, pet gnats, and reds from around the world. Whether visiting the shop in person or online, looking for a gift for a loved one, or that everyday dependable bottle, you're sure to find lots of interesting wines at Henry's. There's free shipping on orders over $300 on the website henrys.nyc and case discounts when you visit the store located in Bushwick. Cheers! And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with author Gary Navehan on his new book, Food from the Radical Center. All right. Um, so I want to shift to um, talk about 
uh, regulation a little bit. Um, this is something that, I mean, there's a big focus on the need for community engagement, obviously, um, in the book, but the need for regulation is an oversight is something that I'm personally like pretty, I think is like super important. So can you explain what you think the role of the federal government is in conservation and restoration efforts today? Well, I like the way you frame this issue, and it's a big one. And and I am not uh, 100% against regulation. My life has been saved by regulation in some ways that I won't go into. <laughs> but, but let me just say that um, if we only have uh, one tool in our toolbox, and it's a hammer, we will make every problem into a nail. Right. <laughs> and, and what I'm saying is that that's what's happened in many of the agencies. Uh, both industry and many local communities fear rather than want to collaborate with the Environmental Protection Agency, although the Environmental Protection Agency has some tr tr terrific programs, like a, a wonderful uh, a border justice program down where I live. Mm -hmm. and and But they're perceived as being only about regulation and punitive damage to people that don't respect the environment. And I think we just need a diversified toolkit to bring more people on board uh, with things. So, for instance, um, I have two endangered fish on my uh, land in a, in a pond that we have on our land. Um, and I take this very personally because in allowing the Fish and Wildlife Service and Game and Fish to put them in my my um, my uh, land. I mm -hmm. had to sign a safe harbor agreement saying, into perpetuity, I will not will not do anything uh, to injure those fish, and strive in every way possible, even during catastrophic droughts, to keep that pond full with water. And in fact, I was doing that today. Mm -hmm. I was uh, filling that with water because. Uh, the other source of water into the pond has been temporarily disrupted, and now it's all on me. So, um, But I signed a safe harbor agreement uh, with the government that said, as long as I, as a private landowner, am trying to do the right thing, if there's accidental loss of those endangered species, what's called a taking, um, I'm not liable, but I have to help with the recovery and the... the um, regeneration of them even harder. So it's it's not a punitive uh, structure. It's actually freeing me of liability as long as I'm in the team trying to solve the problem. I think we need more examples like that. And, and when I uh, talk to Native American medicine man, men that say for thousands of years, uh, my... Um, clan has um, uh, used uh, eagle feathers in our ceremonies, and um, over the last 30 years, we've had trouble uh, getting those even from road-killed birds because of federal laws. A bunch of Native American uh, uh, um, religious leaders and the Fish and Wildlife Service went to that problem and created a repository for road-kills and damaged birds that that then Native American um, religious communities can use, and so rather this than this punitive 
uh, our relationship with nature is don't touch. There's been shifts in the agencies in response to communities' real needs. And I think when we have options other than just regulation and punitive fines to bring people on board, we have that diversified uh, toolkit that we need. Regulation will always be part of that toolkit, but won't be used for every problem. Um, it's certainly true that from like a psychological perspective, positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, which isn't uh, punishment, is proven to be way, way, way more effective than anything punitive. Um, so it makes perfect sense that this would apply to. Um, well, and you're right about that. And it's even more true when we're talking about long-term ecological restoration of a watershed or a, a river or, or, a, or a forest. If people aren't involved and a government agency does reforestation or a rewatering of a river, quote, on behalf of the community, you don't have the buy-in from the community. They don't feel as proud about it that someone else did it for them. And sooner or later, it's undermined by uh, pushback from the community. And Franklin Duke's a uh, brilliant professor on uh, community-based collaboration at, at University of Virginia says, we've analyzed thousands of environmental projects. And if we take that uh, um, sort of narrow approach that it's better for the government agencies uh, to do this than the communities, the efforts never reach their um, uh, like aspire to goals, yeah. and, and everyone loses out, including the people who, who manage that project. So for long-term restoration, we need that community participation across generations. So speaking of community, another thing that you point out is that today – we are, as Americans, bowling alone. You use the term. Um, by the way, I love a good Robert Putnam reference. <laughs> oh, I love, I love Robert Putnam. <laughs> and for, for our listeners who haven't read his book, um, which is titled Bowling Alone, it, it basically proves that as a country we've become increasingly disconnected from family, friends, neighbors, our democratic structures. And examples of this is that we're less involved. We sign fewer petitions. We don't belong to as many organizations. Um, we meet friends less frequently, et cetera. So this is a way for me to ask you, Gary, is how in a time where we need to rely on our community um, to make meaningful impacts in environmental conservation, how are we going to rely on our communities if we are less engaged than we ever have been historically? Well, that's right. So many people who call themselves environmentalists, their only engagement is sending a check off to a national organization. And there's no hands-on participation in one sector of the environmental movement. In another sector, it's all about participation. So if you're uh, a guy from Ducks Unlimited or a National uh, Association of Conservation District uh, local team in a county in Kansas, you go out together and you create habitat for wild turkeys or for uh, fish. And that work brings you together with people who may vote different from you, have a different church, be of a different ethnicity, but you all love ducks or you all love salmon or you all love trout. But how do you encourage people to seek out those opportunities if we're you know, more disengaged than ever? Like, what's the catalyst? The, the catalyst, 
is is twofold. I think we start young, and we really win people over by the the satisfaction of participation. It's not nature's hands off, it's nature's hands on. So we engage kids real early and it grows to be part of their, not just their ethic in a cerebral way, but what they love to do on weekends. It's like the nature study movement a century ago where something like 40 to 60% of the families in the U.S. went out and uh, hiked where wildflowers were abundant and tried to identify them together. And so it becomes part of the activities that you love more than sitting on your your, your uh, iPhone uh, uh, scanning social media. Mm-hmm. I think the second part is that it's that very ancient gesture that's in nearly every faith, not just Christians, that, that the most profound way you show uh, respect for the diversity and dignity of humanity is coming together at a common table. Mm-hmm. And that when we eat together, just like when we restore land together, um, those ideologies fall away. Our reticence to hear people different from ourselves slowly falls away. In some cases, very rapidly falls away because I've seen it and you just say, oh, I thought that guy was an adversary or I thought all people of X were only in this country to Y. Yeah. And then you hear their story over the table when someone's sitting next to you and you're actually ashamed or embarrassed or humbled that that person has every right to be in your community that you have and that you can learn something from them. So I'm, I'm saying that we need, we, it's, we can't talk our way out of this uh, um, issue. We have to work together on the land, and we need to eat together in a way that changes it from just being a cerebral thing to a sensory, tactile thing. Yeah. Um, what about for somebody like me? Um, <laughs> I mean, you and you also state, like, what, how many people, how many more people live in urban communities, like 80% or something yeah, like we're, that? Yeah, we're approaching 80% globally and, um, you know, huge voter blocks and power blocks in urban areas. And a lot of rural people feel disempowered because of that. So what about, you know, opportunities for those living in an urban environment to get involved? Is this something that um, we can we can participate in or is it mostly in rural and suburban communities? No, it's not at all in uh, uh, rural and and communities and wilderness areas. I'm uh, keynoting uh, a big, um, it's almost like a summit more than a conference called Wild Things in Chicago (laughs) in a few more weeks. And it's mostly urban restorationists that are working with the great uh, uh, Chicago area county forests and doing habitat restoration in the urban matrix. Uh, People who are bringing back heirloom apples, uh, to uh, 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 New York City, um, people that are doing uh, guerrilla grafting in San Francisco, uh, people that are bringing Gila top minnows, a native fish that was near extinction, back into urban areas for mosquito control. They're doing it for a variety of reasons, but it's fun and it gets people out together, and and very often it heals the urban-rural divide, like a group in British Columbia called Farm Folk, City Folk, where it invites the uh, the young activists in from rural areas who feel isolated 
part of the time into the city to see some of these projects um, and help with the skill sets of grafting or or uh, propagating uh, berry bushes or something like that. And then the urban people go out to the farm and help them with uh, uh, healing gullies or, or planting wildlife habitat. So this is something that that my Native American friend Robin Kimmer calls reciprocal restoration. Mm. We're restoring the land, but by working on the land, we're somehow restored in our relationships with one another. I love that. Where can listeners go, you know, if they want to kind of get involved? Is there an organization that has a lot of these, you know, kind of projects uh, listed? Uh, it's diverse, and it should be. In other words, it's not a top-down uh, restoration movement. We have great national organizations that always has, have sessions on this, like uh, the Society for Ecological Restoration and the annual uh, Native Seed Conference uh, that is part of a, a national uh, seed strategy. Mm-hmm. But but there's also a variety of of groups in each region. In the Southwest, we have an annual conference in New Mexico led by the Kavira Coalition that has probably involved over 150 grassroots and and uh, nonprofit groups as well as uh, thousands of ranchers and farmers in it. So it varies where you are. MAFCA uh, uh, and the Common Ground uh, uh, Fair in Maine. Uh, Mof- uh, Moses in the Midwest, that's organic farmers, but it's really talking about the health of rural economies. The Land Institute in Kansas. Uh, I could keep on going on, but I think you get the picture. Right, of these various organizations where people can kind of look for volunteer opportunities to get involved. That's right. And and I have to say that our our buddy Putnam says that volunteerism has declined in the U.S. And that um, I feel that um, we... Uh, need to have every um, college student do an internship with a nonprofit group or grassroots alliance before they get out of college. We need every senior center to say, you shouldn't be stuck in isolation with people of your own age. Mm-hmm. Kids need to hear your life story and learn your skill set. So when we've uh, created healing gardens with Native American communities around diabetes clinics where elderly people are on dialysis machines all day. Uh, High school kids ask for the help of those elders in planting Native gardens for food production. They're, They're not forgetting about those elders, so it's really intergenerational healing. What's next for you? Um, a new book? Are you working on a new book or any kind of fun upcoming projects that you want to tell us about? Well, I'm barnstorming the country with this Food for the Radical Center book up till uh, 2020 on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Uh, I, I'm talking to regional conferences and uh, faith-based groups and uh, science-based groups all around the country because I think this is so important. It's not just my life work uh, for the last 40 years. It's it's to celebrate the many good things that people uh, 
have done that that don't need to be swept under the rug because our news media uh, love the the uh, catastrophes and the disasters and the acrimony. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to tell those uh, stories of people coming together now more than ever. So yeah. for the next year and a half, I am in a uh, full court press mode to say there's good news from the North American continent, not just from the U.S., but Canada, Mexico, and uh rural and urban communities throughout this country and we need to support those and bring more uh, moral as well as financial support to people who are bringing us together rather than dividing us. Two um, final questions. First, where can people go to kind of follow your work and to see where you will be? And um, second, where can all of our listeners get a copy of this amazing book? Well, thank you for asking. I have a website that's just my name, uh, GaryNabhan.com, G-A-R-Y-N-A-B-H-A-N.com. And uh, it tells uh, the events that I'll be doing for about six months out and uh, all the recent op-eds and uh, and postings, excerpts, or adaptations of this book that are going out to uh, magazines and newspapers across the country, reminding people of examples in their own backyard. I'm willing to do workshops, not just, uh, you know, talking head uh, lectures, so that people get the skill sets of how to do this on their own. Many people have these skills, of course. And then the book is available from Island Press, uh, a nonprofit press uh, that has been working tirelessly for a healthy environmental community, not just a healthy environment, but really trying to diversify uh, uh, what uh, who is involved in uh, restoration and conservation and to give them skill sets and values that will take them uh, along over the long haul. All right. Well, we have to leave it there. But Gary, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your experience and telling us more about your book. Well, eating matters matters to us. <laughs> now, the, now more than ever before, the kinds of dialogues that you have are really helping reshape uh, how we interact with one another. So thank you and your staff for all the good work you do. Thank you so much. All right. Um, I also want to give our, a big thanks to our sponsors who support programs like Eating Matters, as well as our fabulous engineer, Matt Patterson. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.